This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning, gentlemen. It's good to be with you. We are uh, going to be in Amos chapter 6 this morning. It's my privilege to kick off the uh, faculty uh, chapel messages, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. And I always feel obligated that I need to uh, bring a message from the Old Testament, uh, so I will do that this morning. And... uh, thankful to be able to do so. Uh, we're in the Minor Prophets, as where, as a uh, pastor friend used to say, the pages are still crisp and clean in your Bibles, usually. So uh, we want to spend some time in this portion of God's Word, because I think it has much important truth to communicate to us. On Wednesday, November 27, 1940, Admiral Hus- Husband Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter Short the co-commanders of naval operations in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, received the following warning from naval intelligence. This dispatch is to be considered a war warning. Negotiations with Japan have ceased. Undertake such reconnaissance and other measures as you deem necessary. Hostile action is possible at any moment. Having received this warning, Short and Kimmel heightened the alert status and ordered the radar sets to be operational from 4 to 7 a.m., and then they went back to business as usual. No additional reconnaissance was ordered for the northwest approach to the islands, which was the most logical point of attack from Japan. The entire fleet was left moored in the harbor, dangerously susceptible to air attack. Almost all the naval aircraft remained grounded in the open on Wheeler and Hickam fields. My grandfather was actually there. He was at Hickam Field. A large portion of the personnel were given shore leave over the coming weekend and the following one. And for the next 10 days, military life went on as usual. The warning was little regarded. Just before 4 a.m. on Sunday, December 7th, however, the minesweeper USS Condor detected a Japanese submarine in the waters off Pearl Harbor. And at 6 a.m., the USS Ward sent a message to the commanders that it had attacked and dropped depth charges on a Japanese submarine that was operating in a defensive area near Pearl Harbor. Meanwhile, Kimmel and Short did nothing, awaiting confirmation that these reports were true from other sources. And while they were standing by waiting for additional confirmation, at 7.55 a.m., the first of 200 Japanese dive bombers appeared in the sky over Pearl Harbor. Over the next hour, the Japanese would relentlessly attack U.S. air and naval resources. The USS Arizona and Oklahoma were destroyed with great loss of life. Six other battleships suffered varying degrees of damage, three cruisers, three destroyers, other vessels. The U.S. military casualties from the assault totaled more than 3,400, including more than 2,300 killed, and heavy losses were incurred in the Army and Navy aircraft on the ground. Following the attack, both Kimmel and Short were relieved of duty. Many began to question what could have been done to prevent this attack. This lack of preparedness, this lull of complacency, amply illustrates the spiritual and political situation that we find here in Amos 6 and what the prophet Amos faced in his ministry to the northern kingdom. 
He ministered during a day much like the America of much of our lifetime, a day of prosperity, optimism, and spiritual lethargy. But this was about to change. Within 40 years of Amos' ministry, the northern kingdom would be devastated by Assyria. And Amos was the vanguard, the proverbial canary in the mine, warning that God's wrath was about to strike these rich and spiritually complacent Israelites who were more devoted to pleasure and self-indulgence than to God. And this is a warning we too need to heed this morning, lest we think, as did these Israelites, that we are standing and cannot fall. And the main critique that Amos levels and that we need to hear this morning is this. We must earnestly guard ourselves against spiritual complacency because it is a dangerous and seductive sin. We must earnestly guard ourselves against spiritual complacency for it is a dangerous and seductive sin. Uh, follow me if you would as I read Amos 6. I'm reading this morning from the Christian Standard Bible. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. The notable people in this first of the nations, those the house of Israel comes to. Cross over to Kalna and see. Go from there to great Hamath. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? You dismiss any thought of the evil day and bring in a reign of violence. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches, and dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they will now go into exile as the first of the captives, and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. The Lord God has sworn by himself, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels, so I will hand over the city and everything in it. And if there are ten men left in one house, they will die. A close relative and uh, burner, I'll make an argument uh, to translate this a different way, uh, but the, difficult, the Hebrew there is difficult, uh, will remove his corpse from the house. He will call to someone in the inner recesses of the house, any more with you? That person will reply, none. Then he will say, silence, because the Lord's name must not be invoked. For the Lord commands, the large house will be smashed to pieces and the small house for rubble. Do horses gallop on cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodabar and say, Didn't we capture Karnaim for ourselves by our own strength? But look, I am raising up a nation against you, house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. And they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. To understand the devastating implications of Amos' critique, we really have to understand more about the prophet and the book. And it's important to understand the social and historical context that this book occurs in. Of course, I'm speaking to seminary students who probably are uh, more knowledgeable than perhaps the, the average Christian would be. Uh, but still, it's good to be reminded of where Amos occurs and what his lifetime was like. Uh, this was he, he prophesied during the reigns of two kings, Uzziah, the king of Judah, and Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. And Amos 1.1 tells us this. It's the words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And this places his ministry probably around the time of 7 
60 BC. And this was a time of political and economic renaissance for Israel and Judah. It was a time of relative peace for the northern kingdom. If you think about uh, the world at that time, one of the major powers was Assyria. And Assyria had a king, Adad Nirari III, who a few decades before Amos had defeated Syria. Sometimes you, those are confused, Assyria and Syria, but the, uh, the Syrians, the Arameans, were uh, potential and, and perpetual enemies of Israel. But during this time, there was a stalemate because they had been defeated. There was another kingdom rising called Urartu, who came from the eastern edge of Turkey. And because of this Cold War stalemate, Israel was able to assert its own authority in the, in the area, in the region. And so Jeroboam did this, Jeroboam II. 2 Kings 14.25 tells us Jeroboam II took advantage of the weakness of these rival powers to extend Israel's borders to the north and the south. This is what it says. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hefer. So Amos and Jonah, roughly contemporary. Uh, and so Jeroboam takes advantage to extend Israel's borders. And Israel was also economically growing and prospering. They were situated on the king's highway. So if you were trading goods from Assyria and Mesopotamia to Egypt, you'd pass through uh, Israel. And so they took advantage of this and the tolls and taxation and the numerous building projects that they did attest to the fact that they were doing well economically. Archaeologists have discovered uh, lots of ivory from this period, which was a luxury good, and this suggests that the Israelites were living at a very high uh, level economically. So in this context, Amos is called to be a prophet, and he comes from Tekoa, it's a, it's a smaller city, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So he's a southern boy that goes to the north. And he goes there to the northern kingdom, and he begins to prophesy. But he's not naturally a prophet. Amos 1.1 says that he was a, a sheep herder or a sheep breeder. He uses an unusual word there. It only occurs twice in the Old Testament, once in that verse, and then in 2 Kings 3.4. In 2 Kings 3-4, we have described a Moabite king by the name of Mesha. Uh, and Mesha was a sheep breeder who paid livestock tribute to the king of Israel. And so this word probably has a royal connotation. It's thought that uh, perhaps Amos was a royal sheep breeder connected to the temple or palace. He's probably a member of the upper class, an owner of cattle, sheep, and goats, as well as agricultural operations. We find later in the book that he was uh, a sycamore uh, producer as well, sycamore trees that he was uh, in charge of. So he goes to the north, and you can imagine what happens as he comes in the northern kingdom. To say that they rejected his message would be an understatement. Look with me over at chapter 7. This is sort of a classic vignette of the reaction of the northern kingdom uh, when he came there to prophesy. In verse 12 it says, Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go away, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah, earn your living, and give your prophecies there. But don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it is the king's sanctuary and a royal temple. So Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman, and I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And so he comes, his message is rejected. He probably ministers during a relatively short period of time in the northern kingdom, goes back to the southern kingdom, and writes... Uh, this book of Amos within two years of his ministry. So this is the context. This is the man. 
So that's the prophet. What about the book? The book of Amos itself is uh, a difficult book to outline in terms of its structure. It seems, uh, if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 1, it gives us a clue that there are at least two major sections to the book. It says, these are the words of Amos, what he saw regarding Israel. If you look at those Hebrew words, davar, word, and chose, see, or chaza, to see, it corresponds to what we find in verse 3, the Lord says, in chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord God showed. So in other words, words and visions are the two major parts. And if you look at that part of the words, you can uh, divide that again into two parts, uh, because one section deals with the nations, and another section deals with Israel. So if I were to divide the book uh, it would be this way. We begin with oracles against the nations in the first two chapters. Then we have oracles against Israel in chapters 3 to 6. Visions and prophecies about the end of time in chapters 7 to 9. And then a short epilogue about the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. So with that outline in mind, we realize that chapter 6 comes at the, the end of the second section. So this is the conclusion of these oracles against Israel, which forms the center of the book. I think it's also the greatest concern that Amos has to indict Israel for their sins of spiritual complacency and pride. Chapter 6 and the end of chapter 8 are the end of these oracles, and they both begin in a similar way. If you look at chapter 5 and verse 18, it begins, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. And chapter 6 begins with, Woe to those who are at ease. This is a classic example of what we would call the woe oracle. The woe oracle. And uh, Amos begins here by warning and pronouncing doom on Israel for her spiritual lethargy. Uh, Israel, in the first of these two woe oracles, is denounced because she's spiritually complacent and prideful. She thinks uh, because she observes religious festivals, because she uh, does what the Lord has commanded, God is somehow obliged to bless spiritually. It's sort of like... if. If we check all the right boxes spiritually, if we go through the motions of worshiping God, God will have our back in some sort of cosmic religious quid pro quo. But God responds at the end of chapter 5 by saying this, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. That brings us here to the second woe oracle in chapter 6. This is where our text begins. And it's the final of these two woe oracles. And the people have not learned the lesson from chapter 5. Chapter 5 was a woe oracle about their spiritual complacency, but they haven't learned the lesson. So Amos continues here, and he begins, Woe to you. And this is followed by seven participles or adjectives that describe what these Israelites are doing. What sort of behavior are they manifesting uh, in their transgressions? They are... As Amos says, at ease, they feel secure, they dismiss thoughts of calamity, they lie around on their beds and couches, they dine on fine foods, they improvise songs, and they drink wine from basins. In other words, they are blissfully ignorant in the midst of a spiritual calamity and on the brink of a national calamity. They want more bread and circuses. And the woe oracle ends with a prediction of divine punishment that will occur because of the transgressions they've committed. And here, as we'll see, it's a devastating loss of people and power. The Israelites think they've arrived, but they will soon realize God can take all that away. Some have connected the woe oracle to the lament over a murder victim. 
And if that's the case, what this suggests is that it's, it's outrage over the sin and it's a call for divine justice. And so Amos begins to critique them. And let's look more closely at the text. We begin point one here it, with, with this. God indicts Israel for her spiritual complacency and pride. God indicts Israel for her spiritual complacency and pride. This is in verses 1 to 7. It uh, begins, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. Uh, Amos begins by pronouncing this woe against the conceited and deluded Israelites. The Israelites do not lack for confidence. And the prophet indicts their smug self-assurance. And he says that uh, this disaster he's prophesied is going to come to pass. And he focuses here on the city of Samaria. Now recall that Samaria here represents the capital city of the northern kingdom. This is not to be confused with the, uh, Samaria and the Samaritans of Jesus' day. This is the city and the, the hill that Omri, the king, bought and built. Uh, and instead of repenting, when Amos comes, woe, the people become hard-hearted. This is quite a contrast with Jonah and his ministry, right? When Jonah, who's roughly contemporary with Amos, goes to the Assyrians, they repent in sackcloth and ashes. However, the Israelites apathetically wave off the ravings of this migrant prophet Amos. They don't want to listen to what he's going to say. They don't feel a need to. If you look at how they describe themselves or how Amos sarcastically describes them, they are the notable people in the first of the nation. They are the elites. We might say the ancient equivalent of assistant professors at Harvard, interns at Goldman Sachs, celebrity mavens in Hollywood. They're rich. They're powerful. The world is at their fingertips. They have everything they need, and Amos is about to shatter that illusion. Yesterday marked the 17th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, if you're old enough, which I assume most of us still are, to remember those. You probably remember where you were that morning. I was in my living room watching it on television. And I looked out of my office yesterday, and as the sun broke through, it reminded me of that day. It was a clear and sunny, seasonably warm day. And thousands of people were rushing into work like an ordinary Tuesday morning. And it completely took us all by surprise. And you think particularly about those who were heading to the Twin Towers. There were many who had very powerful and high-ranking jobs who probably woke up that morning thinking it would be a day just like any other. They had no category for even conceiving the magnitude of the disaster that was about to occur. And I think the Israelites here, being warned by Amos, are in much the same Situation and all of us can be lulled into that same complacency. Amos describes them here as carefree and secure. Now that first word means that they are at ease. They are complacent. They have no concern. It's someone who's unfazed, who's, you might say, fat, dumb, and happy with no foreboding of disaster and thus taken by surprise when it happens. And the second term is to be unsuspecting, to have no clue, to be oblivious to what's going on. This term is used in Judges 18.10 to describe the unsuspecting people of Laish. If you remember, the Danites come. They take them by surprise and slaughter them. They had no clue they were about to be taken uh, and slaughtered by the Danites. Uh, Proverbs 14.16 talks about a fool in these terms. It says, a wise man is cautious and turns from evil, but a fool is easily angered and is oblivious. Has, has no clue that disaster is about to strike. These two terms are also used together one other time in the Old Testament. That's in Isaiah 32. In Isaiah 32, the prophet is warning the women that they are 
uh, unsuspecting and God's judgment is about to come. In 32, 9, 11, it says, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails and the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. So Amos focuses his attack here on the so-called elites. They're the notable people in the first of nations. Literally, this means the beginning of nations, the first or the best nation. Their ego is stoked by their celebrity status. They're the ones to whom all Israel comes. Uh, If we could equate this to modern terms, they have a gigantic following on social media. Right? They're the ones that people look to for trends, advice, fashion, morals, worldview, and Amos now indicts these, the, the elites. And he continues here in verse 2, and he says, Cross over to Kalna and see. Now this verse, as many of the verses are in this chapter, difficult to translate. And it's uncertain for several reasons. It's unclear whether this is a question or a statement. It's unclear how this critique matches the critique in verse 3, how we combine those thoughts. And then it's unclear what the situation historically was of these three cities. I, of course, take the book of Amos as coming from the prophet himself, and if that's the case, uh, these cities are not actually destroyed until several decades later. Some suggest that uh, one option of reading this is to say this is a quotation from these elite leaders that are boasting about how great they are. If you have the Met Bible, this is in fact how they translate it. They said, meaning the leader said. That's one way uh, of understanding it. Others argue that it's a prophecy or a historical note about these cities' demise. Uh, But again, I think that's either reading too much into the text or it creates dating problems uh, because uh, that wouldn't occur until after Amos' ministry. So I'm inclined rather to see this as a warning from the prophet. Amos himself is saying to these elites, Go to all these places and think about their situation. And he identifies here three particular cities, and probably the reason that he identifies these cities is they're all situated in no man's land. They're border towns. They're vulnerable to attack. They spend every day of their lives looking on the horizon for marauding armies coming to attack. Let me give you an example here. The first is Kalna. Kalna is to be equated with uh, the same Kalna in Isaiah 10. And there the prophet says, is Kalna like Carchemish? That the point there being both were obliterated by the Assyrians, uh, vanquished and decimated. The second city, Hamath, uh, is north of Israel. It's on the border. Sometimes Israel controlled this city. Sometimes they didn't. It was the northern border during the time of Joshua and Solomon. And Jeroboam II captures this at some point. So Hamath uh, is another border city. And then Gath of the Philistines is in the southwest of Israel. All these cities were at one time or other in their history completely destroyed by invading armies. They were vulnerable cities. And I think the point is this. The Israelites need to take a lesson from these cities. These kingdoms are not better than Israel, but they're always on the defensive. They're always paying attention to their security. They're always ready for attack. They're always taking heed to their situation. And so Amos says, are you better than them? And the answer to this rhetorical question is no, they're not. They too should be uh, preparing for their own judgment. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, You dismiss any thought of the evil day, or, or literally you put off the day of disaster and bring near the seat or reign of violence. This is another verse that's difficult to translate because the first clause says 
they drive away the day of disaster, and the second clause says, you bring near the seat of violence. So it's unclear who's the those or they in the first part and who's the you in the second part. Some see this phrase, this first phrase, as pertaining to the cities mentioned in verse 2. In other words, they are the ones that dismiss the thought of the evil day, and you bring near a reign of violence. That's how uh, several commentators take it. But I think if we've understood verse 2 correctly, that these are border cities that are vulnerable to attack, it seems odd that Amos would say here that they're dismissing the day of evil. In other words, I think they're, the point is they're vigilant, so it's better to say it as the CSB does and other versions that you dismiss any thought of an evil day. Well, if that's the case, how do we correspond that with the second part? They put off any thought of calamity, and yet they bring near a seat of violence. Again, it's a difficult phrase to understand. I, the way that I think uh, we should take it is this, that they're dismissive. That there could possibly be any danger that would come to them. And by doing so, by their dismissal, they're actually bringing near a violent regime that will conquer and oppress them. And this corresponds to verse 14 at the end of the chapter. God is raising up a nation that will oppress them uh, from the borders of Hamath to the sea, the Arabah. So as they put off these days, this evil day, the disaster is coming, and it's closer and closer and closer. And Amos has made this point in the previous chapter. Some of my favorite verses uh, from the book are in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. He says this, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? The Israelites are living in a world of their own imagining. They think everything is great. They think it's full steam ahead. They think God is blessing them, and yet their judgment is coming. It's rolling down the tracks, and they haven't given heed to it. Instead, verses 4 to 7 tell us they spend their days in luxury, Instead of concern, instead of repentance, they lounge around in their decadent living rooms. They order lavish foods from the farm-to-table takeout menu. And some have suggested that this scene is one of a funeral banquet. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily in the text. I, I'd rather read it as simply, this is an indictment of their callous, self-indulgent lifestyle. They're more devoted to themselves and to their own pursuits than to the Lord. And this scene probably involves couches on which they would lie to eat their food. This was a custom they would have adopted from foreign nations. And the ivory here denotes high-end furniture. Uh, this is probably expensive to make. It may be imported from foreign nations. And they're sprawling around on these couches. This is probably a mixture of immodesty, extravagance, waste, and intoxication. It reminds me of many scenes I've read and over the years. I, I like to read a lot of different books and... Uh, if, if you're familiar with how the socialite scenes of New York City at the end of the uh, 19th, early 20th century and on is depicted by uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby or Edith Wharton in The House of Mirth, uh, Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby describes one of the parties that one of the characters goes to, and he focuses on the two main characters, Tom and Daisy Buchanan. And this is how he describes it, this party. He says, it was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money. 
or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they have made. This is kind of what the Israelites are doing, right? They're just feasting and enjoying themselves and not worrying about the consequences, not worrying about the afflictions of those around them. They're uh, feasting on Chateaubriand, tender beef and lamb. This is the diet of the rich. They would take young lambs from the flock and choose them for their fatness. Uh, the Egyptians were famous for uh, feeding calves in the stall lumps of dough until they were so fattened they could barely walk and then slaughtering them. And the Israelites here are feasting on this meat. It's shocking and dismaying to Amos. He goes on to say they improvise songs to the sound of the harp. They're, they're creating new songs for their own entertainment. They have a version of Israelite idol or the voice and they strum and pluck and sing their way to notoriety. This verse, again, is difficult to translate, but the idea here is that they, they probably make up new songs. They improvise. And the second phrase is that they, uh, it can be taken one of two ways. Uh, the CSB translates it that they invent instruments. Uh, it's really the word uh, to think or imagine. And I probably would rather render this that they fancy themselves like David with their musical instruments. In either case, the point is they're self-deluded. They think that they're great. They think that they're... Uh, skilled and, and have privileges, but in reality their judgment is coming. He goes on to talk about their indulgence in verse 6. They drink wine out of these sacred basins. The word there uh, denotes a large basin or a decorative bowl that was usually used for sacred drink offerings or libations in the temple. And what this suggests is they're, they're drinking uh, wine from large, wide-mouthed containers. They're, they're imbibing uh, and they refresh themselves with the finest of oils. Oils would have been like a cosmetic or a lotion. Think essential oils, and they're uh, putting this on every day. Their hygiene is given over to luxury, the finest product uh, that money could buy. And yet they exhibited no concern for the nation. I think verse 6 ends with a punch to the gut. They don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph here standing for the northern kingdom. They're not sorry for that. Instead of repentance and sorrow, they're feasting away their days. Therefore, verse 7 says, the punishment will come. They will now go into exile as the first of the captives. This is a play on words from earlier in the chapter. They were the people of the first of nations, and now they're the first to go into captivity. They'll be yanked away from their couches, lounging uh, and pulled and dragged by chains and ropes after the Assyrians to their judgment. The party's over. It's time to pack up. The end is near, but will they listen? So God transitions here in verse 8. We find number 2, God promises devastating judgment, the loss of people and power. Notice what verse 8 says, that the Lord formally announces his plans for judgment, and he says this in the strongest language possible. He swears by his own authority. There's no higher power that this is going to happen. The Lord God has sworn by himself declares the Lord, the God of hosts. This divine oath guarantees the action has been set. The decision is made. The course is unalterable. This sworn decree binds God to the action set forth. And the source of the oath is God himself. He's the authority behind it. The people's sinful arrogance has provoked God's anger. And the strong emotions are used here. Notice what God says. He despises, he hates uh, both Israel's pride and her status symbol. 
But people are trusting in their luxuries rather than in God, and they're simply using that as a front for their own acts of lust and violence. And so God will hand over the city, Samaria, to her enemies along with everything in it. And he goes on to describe this in a vivid vignette of uh, men in a house. And again, th this translation is difficult in verses 9 and 10, but the main points are clear. It seems to suggest that there are ten men in a house, and when the judgment comes, the entire house will be wiped out. All ten men will die, whether by plague, famine, or the advancing armies. It's not clear. Uh, but it would be unusual in the time of war for ten men to be together in a house. Uh, so this seems to suggest the widespread devastation, and perhaps it's a suggestion that the upper classes will not be exempt from the devastation that's coming. To have ten men in a house suggests perhaps it's a large house, and even these will die. And after the death of these men, two individuals come in verse 10. This is a notorious difficulty in terms of understanding who these two individuals are. The first one seems to suggest a close relative, perhaps an uncle. And the second is uh, often translated as a burner. It takes the, the word here as related to a Hebrew word meaning to burn. And so it takes it to be a, a corpse burner. It's someone assigned to grave duty. It's not clear what that is. I prefer to follow some who see this related to a word for spices that might suggest an embalmer. So, uh, although I admit it's difficult, I would tentatively translate it this way. When his close relative and his embalmer lift him up to take his corpse out of the house, they will say to the one who is in the back quarters of the house, Is anyone with you? He will say, I'm it. And he will say, Shh, for the name of the Lord must not be invoked. So they enter into the house, and they're trying to find out if anyone else is alive, and they find someone hiding, presumably, in the back of the house. They ask him if anybody else has survived with him. He answers with one Hebrew word, which means end or only. The sense is, I'm it, or alone, or only me. And then the first inquirer adjures him to keep silent out of fear he will invoke the name of the Lord, which probably is taboo because of the tenuous political situation that's occurring. I would uh, maybe say this is analogous, if you follow history, to uh, many Jews who pretended to be Gentiles to escape the advancing German armies during World War II. The idea is they're trying to hide the fact that that Yahweh uh, is to be worshipped. And then verse 11 gives the final climactic judgment. The Lord commands both the great house and the small house will be smashed, smashed to bits and pieces. Neither the great nor the unknown, the rich nor the poor will escape. They will all be destroyed. And Amos ends in verses 12 to 14 uh, by warning of this coming oppression due to their sin. And he gives two sort of absurd illustrations. He begins in verse 12, Do horses gallop on cliffs? And this is meant to denote just the folly, the sheer recklessness and corruption of the Israelites. And so he uses this bizarre picture. Uh, would you run a horse over rocky ground or on a sheer cliff? And if you were to do so, anyone would know that uh, breaking a leg or plunging to one's death would be a near certainty. And so, of course, they would say, no, you don't. And in the second question, he asked, does anyone plow there with oxen? Now, this uh, is often amended in, in several versions to, does anyone plow the sea with oxen? And they do that by redividing the Hebrew terms. And I used to take that position, but as I studied a little more, I came to the conclusion that I think I prefer the Hebrew text, at least at this point, 
And I think what Amos is saying here is you neither run a horse up on these cliffs nor plow there with oxen. Either, either act would be sheer folly. It's absurd. It's silly. And these pictures indict Israel even farther. They've ignored justice. They've been reckless, foolish, and absurd by turning justice to poison and righteousness to wormwood. These are uh, poisons and bitter herbs. What they've done is rather than obeying God, they've done the opposite. And he goes on to say they've, they've bragged about their strength and their prowess. And he uses a clever play on words here in verse 13. Uh, he says, you rejoice over low debar. And this word in Hebrew simply means nothing, no thing. And he goes on to say, you, you rejoice about capturing karnaim, which is the Hebrew word, related to the Hebrew word for horns, which is a symbol of strength. So if I were to uh, make this more idiomatic, he says something like this. You've rejoiced over defeating Nothingville, and you've boasted that we took Strongstown by our own strength. And in both cases, it's absurd. It's misguided, just like the equestrian rider and the oxen plowman. Like a self-assured youngster who brags he could beat up a kid three times his size, the Israelites are deluded about their own strength. And instead, God is going to judge them. He ends here in verse 14. He says, I am raising up a nation against you. God is raising up a superior enemy, and this enemy will oppress them all over their newly acquired territory. In fact, if you recall the verse I quoted at the beginning of uh, Jeroboam II's conquest, he conquered from Lebo Hamath to the Arabah. These same dimensions are repeated here, and this is where they'll be oppressed, from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. These new Israelite city-states and regions will be the launching point of the enemy that comes to oppress them. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this uh, perhaps dark picture on Israel's coming judgment? I think this passage points to several pointed and penetrating questions that we can ask ourselves this morning by way of application. Have we too been lulled to spiritual complacency like the ancient Israelites? Are we smugly secure in our own spiritual position and legacy? Do we consider ourselves the spiritual elites? Are we full of self-satisfied spiritual conceit? Are we more devoted to luxury and entertainment than to grieving over sin, both in us and in those to whom we minister? Are we resting on the laurels of past victories, past successes, earlier knowledge, or are we pressing ahead? Are we earnestly guarding ourselves against the dangerous and seductive sin of spiritual complacency? And I urge you this morning to consider your own heart and examine your own life. Seminary can be a dangerous time spiritually. Right? This is why a book is written, Staying Christian in Seminary. Knowledge puffs up. So I encourage you to think about the state of your own soul. And heed the Apostle Paul's warning to the complacent Corinthian church. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And listen to Paul's admonition against spiritual pride in his olive branch analogy. He says, They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And take uh, the Apostle John's warning to the church of Laodicea. 
because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Let's take these admonitions to heart and examine ourselves. Have we been seduced by this dangerous sin of spiritual complacency. Brothers, be on guard. Watch for your souls. Don't let spiritual complacency sneak up on you. And heed the words of the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter. At the end of Second Peter, he says this. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the brief time we've had this morning in Your Word, and I pray that we would learn from uh, this dire warning from Amos to uh, take heed to our own lives and to our doctrine, that we would be faithful, and that You would help us to uh, humbly uh, depend upon Your grace each day and to be Uh, walking with you uh, in an understanding way, uh, knowing our own frailty uh, and taking heed to our hearts. I pray that you'd give us uh, warmth, fervency, and zeal as we serve you, and we would do so in a way that pleases you and honors Christ our Savior. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church, To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.